0: And one of the things that that I had said in coming here was that I would maintain my community involvement. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I'm finding and being a new full-time scholar is the partnerships with community Mm -hmm. and partnerships
1: with community for us to help them. I would say like, there's probably feelings of hopelessness. Because, like, grown up on a reserve, you're so isolated. Uh, you go off to um, school on the mainland for an education. Uh, you're frowned upon when you get there. You shop outside of your community. You know, there's discrimination all over when all of the, you know, when you leave your community. So I see it a real direct impact on young people.
2: Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National
3: Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: This week we wanted to have a conversation around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So we went to two of Julie's fellow faculty members at Windsor Law. Uh, Val Wabus and Beverly Jacobs, who are both Indigenous and, of course, have a lot uh, to say. Plenty to say about, about the uh, TLC. Yeah.
3: So I'm delighted to introduce this episode with my colleagues, Beverly Jacobs and Valerie Wabush. They're actually not only both professors at Windsor Law, but they were both graduates of Windsor Law. And both Val and Bev pursued careers in legal practice. But Each has stayed very firmly rooted within their own communities. For Bev as a member of the Mohawk nation of the Iroquois Confederacy and for Val, as a member of the Warpal Island First Nation, just down the road from us, in fact. Bev has been a leader amongst activist women in the Indigenous community for some time. She was the president, in fact, of the Native Women's Association of Canada for five years from 2004. And she was just awarded the Order of Canada. Yes, she was. This year. Congratulations, <laughs> Bev. Val has worked through graduate work, um, has just completed her PhD on the legacy of residential schools. I had the great pleasure of working with Val as my graduate student when she was doing her masters at Osgoode Hall, and Val was formerly the Bank council um, at Walpole Island. So we sat down to talk about what truth and reconciliation really means. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an expression, of course, since the report came out in 2015 that we have heard around a lot but I wanted to ask them directly what does that mean and what would reconciliation really look like? because I feel that that's something that I still need a lot of help to really understand. And I think there are probably listeners who feel the same. And I also wanted to ask them about their work as Indigenous scholars within the law school. We have only just recently started to see students within the law school and now faculty who come from First Nations communities. And I wanted them to talk about how they think the law needs to change, how the system needs to change to recognize and to incorporate some of their history. Histories and traditions. And they said some things that I think we expected they might say, but they also said a lot of very interesting and important things that I don't think we did expect mm. them to say. So let's take a listen.
1: Hello. What I just shared with you in my language, Mowin, is my spirit name, which is Thunder Shield Woman, my clan, which is Eagle, and my hometown, which is Wapul Island First Nation, or where the rivers divide. I'm also of the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwa Nation, also referred to as Chippewa. Mm-hmm.
3: Sitting here today with my colleagues, uh, Professor Beverly Jacob and Professor Valerie Wabush at the Windsor Law School, and delighted to have both of you here today. Thank you so much for coming and doing this and giving us your time. And I want to begin by asking you about an expression that we hear constantly now in the, the news media and the public discourse, which is truth and reconciliation. And especially since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission presented its report in 2015. But what I want to dig into today with both of you as longtime activists in your community is what really needs to happen in order to make that more than simply a trendy expression or lip service. What are the truths that non-Indigenous Canadians like myself really need to be able to understand to set history straight? And what would real reconciliation look like? Not just media reconciliation, but real reconciliation amongst Canadians. Do you want to start, Bev? So, and I'm going to first
0: start with what's happened recently with uh, Trudeau's approval of the funding of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, pipeline, which becomes Canada's pipeline. And there's lots of history. There's lots of history of the relationship between Canada and Indigenous people and the genocidal policies that Canada historically and to this day have implemented, and I think that this is one of them.
3: So you see the pipeline, Bev, as a really... uh, an untruth and unreconciliation issue. It
0: totally is. And it has to do with the lack of respect of... Indigenous peoples, territories, and lands. And I know that there's differences of opinion, especially in British Columbia, between First Nations that agree to the pipeline and those who don't.
3: Well, some of them are under economic pressures, obviously. Exactly.
0: And I think that, to me, the issue about money, and that's, you know, money and resources trumping Indigenous peoples' uh, rights to land and territory has been historic in not only in politics but in law Mm. the lack of understanding Mm. i think of indigenous people's relationship to their lands and resources and the unwillingness to resolve
3: anything and actually making things worse so I want, in a minute, to come to both of your work as lawyers and as legal scholars, but I want to stay with this point about respect that, that you raised, Bev, and, uh, and maybe Val, get you to comment on this. I mean, what I, what I heard you say, Bev, was that part of that respect is taking the time to learn and understand, and you particularly talked about the relationship between indigenous people and the land you know, are there other ways in which you can explain to people who are listening to this who may not have a lot of understanding what would that respect
1: look like? First of all, respect has to be both ways, of course. And I think the part that Canadians need to understand is that we were here originally. We we are the original peoples of this land. Everybody else is a settler. And... When they come to this country, I mean, all of the, the policies, the government, um, everything that's been created here, you have to remember that it was all created under the oppression of our people. And it was done deliberately. Yeah. And I think that's the really the point that needs to be driven home to settlers is that this didn't happen to us willingly. It was the it, taking it, of land. It, it was the taking yeah. of land, unfamiliarity with our people, and the lack of understanding, and the lack of even wanting to understand what our people were all about. And because we are a different people, Europeans, settlers, seen us as second-class people, and we're not. We're the original people of this land. We're the ones that should be governing this whole territory. So that's what I think needs to be understood is that the respect on the part of settlers is not there. So for a
3: young person in your communities today, whether they live in a city, whether they live on reserve, that sense of a lack of respect that you're talking about which I think is often very difficult for people who have power to understand Mm -hmm. what does it feel like for a young person today in your community to have that lack of respect because you have your scholarly lens for this and understand Mm -hmm. how all this happened but if you're a kid growing up on a reserve what does it feel like not to have the same respect as a non-indigenous Canadian
1: I would say like there's probably feelings of hopelessness because like growing up on a reserve you're so isolated Mm -hmm. Uh, you go off to um, school on the mainland for an education Uh, you're frowned upon when you get there you shop outside of your community you know there's discrimination all over when all of the you know when you leave your community so I see it a real direct impact on young people and their self esteem and their self esteem you know who they are, I mean, you have to have really strong um, identity to, to be able to move forward. And I know that because I was, I'm probably a product of that myself. Yeah. Partially. I mean, I, like, I'm sitting here, you know, as a um, Working for Windsor Law, but yeah. at one time I was one of those people. Right. I was one of those children that didn't understand, like why we were secluded on a reserve, why I went to school, you know, on a bus into you know uh, another town, and why I was discriminated against. Yeah. So it's a lot of those young people don't get out of that, and they don't have the opportunity. For some reason, I was chosen for, you know, to be able to have that opportunity, but a lot of our young people don't have that. Do you want to add anything onto that? Well, I just want to share
0: my experience is the same as Val's. I grew up in the community, and and Six Nations is the largest populated community in Canada. When I was 16, my cousin committed suicide. And he's 19 years old I'm in so my sorry. parents' home, and lots of suicide in my family. Like yeah. It's just, and you think I grew, I did grow up, and also in a very strong traditional understanding of our ceremonies, and so that knowledge was also there. That when I grew up, so it was, it was a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. and also about Christianity. Mm-hmm because my grandmother was in the residential school, um, in the mush hole, and there was a division between my grandmother's family and being becoming very Christian and not wanting to speak Mohawk anymore, just...
3: You so know, that, that religion separated her from her community. Separated herself. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And so that the impacts of that trickle has trickled even to my grandchildren, still. And so what I see happening with the young people is that they're really screaming out at us. They're really screaming out and saying, "We need we need help. We need to understand, we need to know what's going on. We need to we need to find out how come everybody's fighting amongst each other, not only internally, but externally." because i think some some do feel that hopelessness mm-hmm. but then there's some on the other side who are like the activists they have no filters like they can they'll just go out and do whatever whatever they need to do and fighting for the land and fighting for the water and so there's lots of things that are happening amongst the young people from the you know on the range of mm-hmm. of the hopelessness to the major activists and saying, what, what are we going to do? What are the
3: actions that we can do to make things better? Bringing this back to the two of you very directly, and I feel in many ways that this is putting a burden on you, but it's a burden I think that both of you accept and recognize. You know, how you going to be able to support, energize your young people in your communities through the work that you do now? Because I know that what you want to see is a next generation that really comes to grips with this in a different way than you have been able to experience in your lifetime. What do both of you, each of you see as, as what you can do?
1: Well, going back to um, truth and reconciliation, Mm. to begin with, our young people, a lot of them, I believe, are searching for who they are as, like, myself, Anishinaabe. Like, what does that mean? Why am I, you know, like I said, secluded on this piece of land? What makes us different? So I think a lot of young people are searching for that. So for me... I believe that my role is to actually help them if they want that help to find out who they are and show them, like, kind of direct them in the right way. Although I'm not in the community as much as I used to be, uh, when I was in the community, I was a life skills coach. So I worked with a lot of young people. And part of that... um, that role was to educate. Mm. And and a lot of the work that I did, I did around our culture um, so that they start to understand and I think it's really picked up since I've been here and no longer doing that type of work there's like three other programs now that have picked up on the culture and they're you know using that so I that is I think really what is needed at grassroots level so that the young people aren't on you know questioning well who am I where do I fit in what's my role here mm-hmm. because our people we all had as men and women, we all had roles and responsibilities of the things that we were supposed to do, so those things need to be taught again, and it was all disrupted by you know um, the history of what's happened to our people in the residential schools and the so, residential schools. so, mm-hmm. so yeah. we need to go back and I find that um a lot of communities now are going back mm-hmm. and searching because like within our prophecies, for example, it states that there will come a time when we'll start searching for those pieces that were left on the trail. And that's what we're doing right now. We're in that, you know, at th- in that time. So I, I think it really in order for anything like for us to move forward in a really good way and to actually reconcile, we need to reconcile with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the research that I'm going to be doing because, uh, you know, I like the TRC um, final, you know, and it says a lot of things about relationships with government. Inside the community. Inside. Yeah. Do they, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm like, do they even know what the government's talking mm-hmm. about, about yeah. reconciliation? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I think the majority of our people are only looking out for their basic needs. Yeah where am i going to you know get Death my surviving. food yeah, yeah where am i going to get my food for next week you know how am i going to pay my rent things like that so to me it needs to happen at the grassroots level
3: you know you raise a point that i hadn't occurred to me until now but is is so obvious now i think about it which is the other challenge you both face is because of the work you've done and because of the success that you've had in the work that you've done you are now in some ways, more removed from your communities. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, Val, I can remember you and I talking about this years ago now. This is such a hard task you have here. You want to remain as a role model. You want to remain really engaged, yet now you're in a different kind of a place. So how do you bring those pieces together? I mean, that's that's really hard. Well, I would say
0: I don't think I'm removed. I know that being here at the institution and one of the things that that I had said in coming here was that I would maintain my community involvement. Mm. I think one of the things that I'm finding and being a new full-time scholar is the partnerships with community Mm -hmm. and partnerships with community for us to help them. Um, So what I'm thinking is, and I was just thinking of this on the drive here, because I spoke to a high school in Brantford yesterday, and um, and it was the whole day. So they, came, they asked me to come in the whole day, talk about being a lawyer and a teacher, a professor of law, and my successes, and to help the young people in the high school. And it's easy to do that. There, I mean, that's not hard at all. But it's like well what's the follow-up from that and, and I know Val she's been doing Anishinaabe law camps you know and how and with faculty and with students here, but how do we transfer that to the community and the, knowledge, the community. knowledge into yeah. our own community. So I was talking to uh, my cousin, my cousins who are very traditional, on the ground, grassroots, and they're wanting to bring all these issues to educate the community. And I said, well, why don't we have a Haudenosaunee law camp? Mm and bring the young kids and do, bring all of our knowledge holders and knowledge keepers and transfer that knowledge to our kids Mm -hmm. because even though we have, we do have immersion, we have immersion schools with language immersion and there's lots of, you know, I'm not saying that, that nothing is happening, there's lots that are happening in the community, but
3: not understanding why. Right. I mean, not the, the theme I'm I mean, hearing here is that we're doing, you know, a relatively better job of educating the white folks outside, mm-hmm. but we're not <laughs> yeah. necessarily investing yes. in and, your own community. Right. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. Exactly.
1: And you want to know why? It's because institutions like this law school have money. Yeah. Where our communities, there's so, no money for yeah. us to do stuff yep. like that. And that's always the issue because, um, like, going back to the, the pipeline, I mean, they are given away $4.5 billion, billion dollars for all the, you know, this pipeline, and yet our children are, like, in care. Yeah. And that, you know, a lot of that money could have went there, a lot of that money could have went to, you know, like this reconciliation process, yeah. which the government actually endorsed. You yeah, know. It's still about economic inequality. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, the, that's the reality of the situation is that, you know, we could do lots more, but somebody holds the, the purse strings and won't let them go.
3: So I, I want to just ask each of you now a little bit more about your own work in the law, because you each have different areas that you have become experts in. And of course, one of the pieces of this puzzle, would it be possible for each of you to say a little bit about a particular, and I know we're talking like micro here mm-hmm. with a very big macro mm-hmm. picture out there pieces that you feel especially passionate
1: about changing. Well, mine is the indigenous legal traditions because I this year did not want to teach any of the courses that don't have something to do with our our laws. So for me, my what I what I see and what I I have a passion for is that we have our own laws recognize us a third Actually, in the original laws of this country, Mm. and put in their rightful place, because um, we always had laws. When settlers arrived here, we had our laws. How do you think we govern ourselves? I mean, so for the sake of people
3: listening who don't. Know very much about these traditions. Could you give us, like, a one, give us just one example? I know there's going to be many. Just give us one example of an indigenous legal tradition that you feel needs to be recognized as a legitimate part of the legal system.
1: Truth. How has the foundation of this country been ab- actually established? Mm-hmm. That's the truth. We need to know, Canadians, and not only Canadians worldwide, people need to know uh, what that truth really is. Another is the respect, and we talked about respect already, and those are part of our seven-grandfather teaching. So, I mean, those are part of the laws that I think, because really, if you look at common law, civil law, they're all based on those uh, principles as well, but they don't call them like that. They call them law, Canadian law, man-made law, but really ours is, we believe, comes from the creator. This is what the creator gave us, so ours is very like connected to spirituality, yes. to the land, to everything that, you know, in this universe. So that's my passion. Bev, what's your... That's, that's my passion, yeah. too, is,
0: is the recognition of, of uh, Haudenosaunee legal traditions. And, I mean, we're just, like, scratching the surface with this mm-hmm. mandatory first-year law mm-hmm. course. But within that, my focus has also been about safety so safety of our women and children and elders and men in our communities and so if we are if we actually follow our traditional laws it was inherent in our laws to be safe mm-hmm. right so and there was always, there was always equality, mm-hmm. right? There was always an acknowledgement of respect to each other as, as human beings. As that's part our, of people keeping people safe. Because that was what our laws taught us about being good people. Mm-hmm. And so because our laws have been impacted so much that those teachings haven't been transferred mm-hmm. like we would have transferred them, from one generation to the other from the time that we're born mm-hmm. until we die. And whose responsibility is it to change colonial laws? It's the colonial mm-hmm. people. Right. Right?
3: Yeah. So And I also would, happen to be the people with the power to right, change the laws. That's right. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean I see that as the task in being a, a law professor and the responsibilities to shape minds to mm-hmm. understand why that needs that why that needs to happen because is the system working for anybody mm-hmm. is it working for anyone
3: mm-hmm. we haven't had that
0: many people on Not this podcast who have it is <laughs> right so <laughs> it's like if we all follow because our our laws are based on humanness mm-hmm. and about human responsibility so if we are to infiltrate Transpose in a good way um, the system because our systems worked.
1: Yeah, and, that, and they work. Yeah, and that's part of what um, our our um, traditions are about: living that good life. And that's what the when we were placed here, that's what the Creator gave us: that all this beauty around us, and that we could live with all those laws in a good way. Respecting one another, loving one another, caring, all that, you know, those um, principles that we live by. And I think that has been lost within the law. I mean, it's in there if you really dig deep. But I mean, like, are those the principles that all these precedents are being framed around?
3: Without... You know, we could go on for hours here, and I feel like we've just scratched <laughs> the surface. <laughs> I am <laughs> so grateful to both of you for talking to me today, and I, I, I know I'm going to want to talk more to you. Um, but thank you so much for your time yeah, this morning. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
2: This is one of my favorite conversations uh, that that you've had. To start off with, uh, one of the things that most struck me was when I think it was Val talked about the issue with You know, we're having all of these kind of big-picture discussions across the country and at the highest levels of government, and, you know, of course that's good, you know, talking about all of these things, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and, you know, how we can make change and, you know, make the country better in regards to these issues. But as both Val and Bev pointed out, one of the kind of fundamental Problems with all of this is that at the very ground level, at a grassroots level, you have so many people in the First Nations communities who are literally struggling to survive every day. It kind of made me think of um, (laughs) first year psychology and um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the discussion about how, if you're focused on where your next meal is coming from, how you're going to pay the rent, your physical safety. You can't really have those higher level discussions or thoughts about, you know, identity identity or, you know, how how the world needs to work to be a better place because you're focused very naturally on literally surviving. And that is obviously a huge issue. How can we really make actual, effective, true change if we've got this huge roadblock?
3: Because there are many communities that don't even have access to Um, clean drinking water for example in Ontario I mean I think that one of the things that talking with Bev and Val did for us and I'll include you because you were sitting right there in the room (laughs) And it was at times, I think, quite an emotionally, mm-hmm. um, you know, intense experience mm-hmm. listening to them, was really to bring home how much is needed at that grassroots level. And yes, in terms of, of survival, if this is a community that is going to reassert and re-find and re-establish a really strong cultural identity, which was a lot of what both mm-hmm. Bev and Val were talking about, they first have to have those survival needs met.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, it was great to hear Val talking about her work with with Liz young as people. a life coach. Yeah. yeah, as a life coach and, and um, trying to work with young people in the community to think about who they are culturally and where their identity lies. And I really loved the the phrase she used that they're you know kind of in this place right now where they're searching for the pieces left on the trail. Yeah. And I thought it yeah. was such a beautifully evocative phrase for, for, for what is happening right now in these First Nations communities.
3: Right, reaching back for what has been lost mm-hmm. uh, in order to move forward. And, and Bev, as well, of course, talked about how she works in high schools. And yeah, I was really struck by what both of them said and how, in a way, they talked differently when we got onto the topic of working with young people in their communities, mm-hmm. because that is obviously not abstract all. And I think one of the things that, that Bev said that really s- stuck with me was when she talked about young people screaming out for help, mm. uh, screaming out for help in terms of those basic survival needs, but also in terms of being included and feeling part of a community that they could relate to, whether mm. that was an indigenous community or it was a more integrated, diverse community. And I thought, of course, it was a beautiful irony that uh, they mentioned that there is, you know, funding available to teach white <laughs> folks about indigenous issues. But not necessarily funding to help teach Indigenous kids about Indigenous traditions.
2: Right? Yeah. yeah. I think if you if you listen back, you will audibly hear you know <laughs> me like a ghost in the background snort uh, towards the end when Bev said, um, you know, makes the very astute observation: is the justice system really working for anyone? You know, let alone people in the First Nations community, and, and of course, we I, hear that a lot? My goodness, I snorted because this is something we grapple with on a daily basis yes. at the project, and I think everyone in that room, and, and many of our listeners, and many people around us would agree that no, the justice system is not really working for a great many people, and of course, in a big way that includes um, members of First Nations communities. But I think what is so is so interesting about this this. Desire at Windsor Law and and hopefully in other places at other law schools and in the justice system in general, this movement towards recognizing First Nations legal traditions. Mm -hmm. And of course at Windsor Law this fall is the um, first time we have a new course where all the first year students will be taking a, a course on First Nations legal traditions. And I think that these legal traditions, the way Val and Bev express them, they obviously are traditions that put a lot more emphasis on respect, on a holistic perspective, and I think that is obviously something that we need in our justice system, and we see that constantly. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because
3: you and I have contact all the time, and other members of our team have contact with people all the time who are not Indigenous or who do not identify as Indigenous, yet they express the same loss of respect and loss of feeling of inclusion mm. um, and loss of... A feeling of meaning around the legal system that we heard in our conversation with with Val and with Bev. You know, my own, you know, limited but but small experience with working with uh, Indigenous communities. In fact, Val and I did some work on Walpole um, a number of years ago as mediators. Was I really saw close up the values that are given in that community to relationships and forgiveness and you know feeling that you have a just outcome outcome, Mm. you know, and what the feelings are around that, whereas we have privileged so much this formalistic, Mm. quasi-scientific approach to law in law school. So it's going to be so interesting to see what kind of an impact teaching our students about these traditions can have and how we can find ways to include them in a legal system that can then be better for everybody.
4: In other news... First up in other news, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing was last week. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee conducted quote-unquote job interviews with the nominee for a vacant U.S. Supreme Court seat, and this process included testimony by a woman accusing the nominee of sexual assault. It was watched on live TV by millions and is under heavy scrutiny. Those who care about access to justice should be watching this process especially carefully. There are a lot of similarities between the treatment and experience of SRLs and the treatment and experience of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Bullying by institutionally more powerful people is something SRLs can understand. Only powerful people are allowed to be angry in public and still be seen as heroic. These are men like Brett Kavanaugh and SRLs are not part of this club. Imagine for a second if a woman had been this angry. What would be the dialogue around her actions? Shouldn't everyone be given an opportunity to tell their story? Whether that's sexual assault, or what happened when you were fired, or ripped off, or your struggle over access with your ex, with or without a lawyer? Are some stories, and some litigants, discouraged, or habitually disbelieved? And are some opponents intrinsically more powerful, for example, those with a lawyer? or members of an elite profession. We welcome your thoughts on what we learned about access to justice from the Kavanaugh hearings. Next up, returning to our main focus today on the conversation of reconciliation, the Faculty of Law at the University of Victoria has launched the first ever law program that merges a law degree in Canadian common law, a JD, and a law degree in indigenous legal orders, a JID. Quoting from the university's press release, the new law program at the University of Victoria will help Indigenous peoples and Canada build enduring political and legal relationships. It will will be applicable to rebuilding economies, environmental management, child welfare, education, human rights, healthy communities, and housing. Students will learn how to understand Indigenous legal orders, how to reason with these orders, build institutions based on those orders, and design institutions and procedures that work in concert with other levels of Canadian law. At the NSRLP, we see this as a great potential step, and we hope this contributes to meaningful discussion of reconciliation moving forward. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Next week, we'll be taking a short break as we prepare for our upcoming dialogue event.